This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. We're beginning Chapter 2 in the series, Holiday Homicides. I got an interesting question posed to me the other day. Do more homicides happen during the holidays? If so, why? When I was studying psychology, I read a couple of studies that said that crimes don't happen more frequently at specific times of the year, like people think, such as holidays or full moons. But talking to law enforcement officers and hospital personnel, and they say that they definitely do see an uptick in crime during these times. So I guess it depends on who you believe. But if they do happen more frequently, why? I think I came up with a few theories. Number one, you're with your family. Need I say more? This is one time when we tend to spend more time with family. And sometimes that can be a little, let's say, complicated. Also, we tend to be in close quarters due to the weather. So if you're all kind of piled together in one place, there's something called cabin fever that makes you go a little bit stir-crazy. There's also stress that tends to revolve around creating the perfect holiday. So if you think about the Griswold family Christmas, something like that. You have high expectations. The holidays are supposed to be so happy and so fun and so joyous. And it doesn't always quite meet expectations, and that can create some stress. Also, financial stress comes into play during the holidays. Too much money sometimes is spent on gifts or travel. And before you know it, your bank balance starts to dwindle, and that can create a little bit of tension and stress. And finally, everyone seems to be hurried and harried during the holidays. Everybody's out in the world, shopping and going to events and parties and things. And then we encounter more traffic, more lines, more short tempers. That's possible as well. On this episode of Once Upon a Crime, it's possible that this tragedy occurred due to multiple complicated issues that were occurring in the family. And one long-held family secret that has just recently after almost 80 years, come to light. I hope you'll join me as I tell the story of the tragic demise of a family that occurred in 1929 and is considered one of the worst Christmas Day crimes ever recorded in the United States. This is Chapter 2, The Lawson Family Murders. Charles Davis Lawson, also known as Charlie, was born in Lawsonville, North Carolina in 1886. He was one of 11 children born to Augustus, or Gus, and Nancy Lawson. They were tobacco farmers, and the work was hard and strenuous and required many hands to cultivate and grow the tobacco and get it to market. The Lawson family was typical of that time and region, large families who farmed the land and were a close-knit group. Charlie was tall with intense blue eyes and large protruding ears. He wore his dark hair parted down the middle. He was unremarkable growing up, just another farm boy in a large family. People liked Charlie. He was quiet and respectful and hardworking. When Charlie was 24 years old, he met a local girl named Fanny Manring. She was 19 years old. They fell in love and married the following year, on March 12, 1911. Very quickly, they started their big family. In total, Charlie and Fanny would have eight children. The firstborn was Marie. She was born in 1912. 
Soon after came James Arthur, born the following year, and then William one year later. Three years later, in 1917, Carrie was born. Charlie continued to work first on his family's tobacco farm and then as a tenant farmer around the area, moving from one position to another as his family grew. But the dream for most men of the Lawson family was to own their own home and farm. Charlie was no exception. He continued to work and save to purchase his own farm. Finally, in 1918, he was able to buy a farm in an area called Germantown. His brother Marion had moved there with his wife Jetty and their large family, and when he heard of a farm going up for sale nearby, he told Charlie. Charlie was about to secure a loan to purchase a 60-acre farm for $1,500. But soon after the family moved to Germantown, Charlie became very ill. He suffered in pain that winter with a condition that presented itself as a form of arthritis. He was in pain and bedridden early that year. Charlie was desperate to regain his health and his strength as quickly as possible. He knew that he must be able to work his farm come spring when the crops would be in. Every man, especially the head of the family, would be required. Meanwhile, Charlie's father, Gus, took ill with a cold that same winter. As the days passed, Gus's condition worsened. In late February, Gus was diagnosed with pneumonia as his health continued to deteriorate. Not long after, Gus died. Charlie became hysterical when he heard the news. Even so, he was so ill that he was unable to attend his father's funeral. After a couple of months, Charlie recovered and was able to go back to working the farm. But apparently he was unable to pay the loan for the land, and the farm went back to its original owners. Charlie must have been frustrated at being unable to realize his dream. Needing to provide for his growing family, he took a position as a tenant farmer once again. The farm they worked and lived on belonged to friends of the Lawsons, and he was able to build up his health and his finances during his time there. Little William turned six years old in November of 1920. Around that same time, he caught a cold. Fanny did everything she knew to do to help him recover, but William seemed to grow worse by the hour and came down with a high fever. Charlie decided to fetch the doctor. He would have had to ride ten miles into town on his mule to summon him. Once the doctor arrived, he diagnosed William with pneumonia. This must have been very concerning to his parents, especially Charlie, as his father had died after a bout with pneumonia. The doctor gave him doses of cod liver oil while Franny placed mustard plasters on his little chest. But the next day, less than a week after his sixth birthday, little William died. He was buried nearby in Browder Cemetery. Charlie and his family moved to work another farm near to his brother Marion and Elijah. The family remained close. It was also convenient for Fanny and the children. Fanny was close to Marion's wife, Jetty, and the children left to spend time with their cousins as well. The families didn't have much to spare, but they helped each other out as much as possible, and everyone seemed to be content to live this farming life, as harsh as it could be sometimes. The work was hard, and when the crops weren't good, times could be really hard. Children were most at risk on the farm, as were pregnant women. Women often died in childbirth, and sometimes the baby survived, and sometimes it didn't. Sickness could take a young child or an old person quickly, and it often did. William wasn't the only child to succumb to an illness. Marion and Jetty also lost a baby before he was even one year old. Charlie and his family had been working the McGee farm for two years, and times were happy. The cousins could visit and play with each other, and Fanny and Jetty could share duties caring for all the children, cooking and cleaning. 
Charlie and his brothers Marion, Elijah, and John would also help each other out with the farm work. Tobacco farming was hard work and required around-the-clock care during the curing process. They also had cows and pigs to care for on the farm as well. The family continued to grow. James was born in 1925 and Raymond in 1927. It was also in 1927 that Charlie was finally able to purchase a farm of his own. The property sat on Brook Cove Road and included a house and 114 acres of land. The house, while functional, was very old and small. At the time, it was well over 100 years old. Charlie agreed to purchase the farm for $3,200. The loan required Charlie to pay $500 per year toward the loan. Fanny quickly began with the help of Marie, now 15, to fix up the home for her family of eight. Charlie promised to build her a bigger, more modern home as soon as they could afford it. Charlie kept busy planting his crops, tobacco, of course, and also corn. One day when he was breaking up some chunks of earth with a pickaxe, the tip of it got caught on a wire that was hidden by brush. When the wire broke, the axe recoiled and hit Charlie in the forehead. His forehead bled profusely, and one side of his face was black and blue for weeks. But Charlie had not lost consciousness, and the doctor didn't feel it was that serious. Later, however, others would speculate whether this might explain Charlie's later actions. The fall of 1927 was a good one for tobacco crops, and Charlie's farm saw a profit from all of their hard work. Charlie took a trip to Winston-Salem that year to sell his crop at a tobacco warehouse. While there, a black man pushing a cart down a narrow aisle hit Charlie in the leg. He reacted angrily, calling the man the N-word. While Charlie took stock of his leg to see if he was injured, the man returned, once again smacking the cart into Charlie's leg. He was furious. He lunged towards the man and they began to wrestle around on the ground, Charlie threatening to kill him. Before anyone could react, the man pulled out a switchblade knife and stabbed him quickly twice, once nicking a lung. Charlie continued to try and catch the fleeing man, but collapsed. Arthur, Charlie's oldest son, was there and gathered his father up and rushed him to a nearby hospital, where he would remain for two weeks. Fortunately, he recovered and was able to go back to working the farm. In 1928, Marion's wife, Jetty, died from an infection after giving birth to a daughter. Stella, as the oldest daughter, took over the care of the home and the children. The newborn baby was sent to be cared for by Charlie's brother's wife, Nina. Nina had lost her own twin babies who hadn't survived childbirth. She cared for the baby for a time until Nancy Lawson, Charlie and Marion's mother, came to stay with Marion to help him and Stella care for the home and the family. Not long after that, Hallie, the name given to Jetty's baby daughter, became ill and died. Marion moved his family to another nearby farm with a much larger house. Stella continued to care for the six children with periodic visits from her grandmother Nancy. Charlie continued to work his farm and it was doing well, but finances were still tight with so many mouths to feed. As Christmas of 1928 approached, a neighbor, Ralph Miller, heard that the previous year, Charlie's children did not receive anything at all for Christmas. He asked Charlie a week or so before Christmas if he and his wife could help them out with providing some small gifts for the children. Charlie quickly shot him down, saying, We don't need no help. No, thank you. They don't need to celebrate Christmas. I'll see to it they get what they need. One day when Charlie was out, Ralph snuck a bag of fruit and candies over to Fanny. He told her he knew Charlie didn't care for Christmas celebrations, but he wanted to give her a little something for the children to enjoy. She thanked him and told him, 
Charlie is just proud, you know? He doesn't want to admit that he doesn't spend that much on things like Christmas, so he just says we don't have to celebrate. Ralph felt sorry for Fanny and the kids. He would periodically sneak over small treats for the kids while they were still neighbors. Charlie, by most accounts, was a loving father in his way. He loved his children and worked hard to provide for them. But he also had a short temper and could be a strict taskmaster. Arthur, his oldest son, often received the brunt of Charlie's anger, as he was required to help his father on the farm. One day, when Charlie and Arthur, now almost 16 years old, were cultivating the tobacco field, Charlie became angry, yelling at Arthur for being careless and pulling the mules too close to the young plants. Arthur argued with his father, saying he was doing it just as he had told him to. Charlie got angrier. He pulled a switch from a nearby tree and stomped back over to his son, saying, I'll teach you to backtalk me, boy. Arthur, however, stood up to his father this day. No, Papa, he said. You ain't gonna whip me today. You'll never be man enough to whip me again. As Charlie drew the switch back to strike Arthur, his son grabbed it and broke it in half over his knee, tossing it away. Arthur then continued back down the row with the mules. Charlie, defeated, never tried to whip his son again. In the summer of 1929, Fanny Lawson was 37 years old and pregnant with her eighth child. Fanny was a sweet-tempered woman who adored her children and her husband and didn't often complain. Fanny and Charlie seemed to still dote on each other after so many years of marriage. While Fanny was exhausted from caring for the children while heavily pregnant that summer, she told a friend who came to visit that Charlie even helped her wash her hair since he knew she didn't have the energy to do it herself. While the friend was over, she saw Charlie bring Fanny her dinner plate. He takes good care of Fanny, she thought. He's a good, caring husband. That summer, Charlie began to complain of more frequent headaches. His family wondered if it had to do with the blow to the head he had received with the pickaxe. He also told his brother Marion that he had trouble falling asleep lately. Marion told him that he needed to see a doctor, because if he didn't get his rest, he wouldn't be able to keep going. Marion said, hopefully, that cooler weather was coming, and maybe that would make it easier for Charlie to sleep. Charlie responded, I don't know. Sometimes it just seems like there's trouble at every turn. Marion asked him what he meant. Instead of answering, Charlie just walked off towards the nearby railroad tracks without saying a word. Marion felt Charlie had been acting strangely as of late, but thought perhaps it was just his headaches and other health concerns taking a toll on his 42-year-old brother. He thought he'd leave him be for now, and when he was in a better mood, they might have a talk. Charlie's eighth child, a girl named Mary Lou, was born late that summer in August of 1929. Fanny herself began to notice increasingly odd behavior from Charlie and commented on it to her sister-in-law, Nina. That fall, Fanny reported, Charlie would stay up after the rest of the family had gone to bed, and sometimes he would sit in the dark and cry uncontrollably. One day, she told Nina, Charlie came to Fanny while she was rocking in front of the fireplace. She had just put two-month-old Mary Lou down in her crib. He knelt down in front of her and took her hands in his. I have something I need to talk to you about, he said. He began to cry. He asked her if he'd ever done anything to hurt her or make her unhappy. No, Charlie, she said, you've always been a good husband to me. He continued to say he needed to tell her something, but didn't know how. Franny, alarmed now, asked him to please tell her. All of a sudden, he stopped, saying, It's nothing. Tonight's not a good time. 
it was really nothing at all. She told her sister-in-law about it, and they both speculated on what he could mean. But not long after that, Fanny woke up to find Charlie not in the house. She went outside to look for him and found him on his knees in the cornfield crying and praying. What's wrong, Charlie, Franny pleaded. Is it your head hurting you again? He seemed surprised to see her and said, Yes, this misery in my head is so bad I can't stand it. Fanny insisted he come back to the house with her. He relented, and as he got up from the field, she saw that he had his shotgun with him. Fanny's sister-in-law asked her soon after if Charlie was still behaving strangely. Fanny said he was, still staying up late, crying and suffering from headaches. And she added another bit of news. Charlie seemed to have grown obsessed with his guns, getting up in the middle of the night, cleaning and checking on them. He seemed almost in a frenzy sometimes, as if it was an emergency. He needed to see his guns and make sure they were in working order. Neighbors would report hearing arguing coming from the Lawson home that fall. If it did happen, Charlie and Fanny didn't talk about it with anyone. Three weeks before Christmas, Fanny was still wondering if they'd be able to do anything for the children for the holiday. Fanny told her sisters-in-law that when she asked Charlie, he told her not to worry about it. He was planning a surprise for the family, he said. He was taking care of everything. He wouldn't tell her what the surprise was. About two weeks before Christmas, Charlie announced that the whole family would be taking a trip to Winston-Salem. He also announced that he was going to buy each person a new set of clothes and have a family portrait made. This was a very big deal. To get a family their size to the city would be a big undertaking. The children were excited, and Fanny got the kids prepared for the 45-minute trip. Once in the city, Charlie took his family to one of the larger clothing stores. He said he wanted each of them to pick out a good set of store-bought clothes. When Fanny shared her concern about the expense, He told her it didn't matter, that he had the money to pay for everything. The girls got to pick out pretty dresses, while the men and boys bought suits. Carrie even requested and was allowed to purchase silk stockings. Her mother thought she was too young, but Charlie told Fanny to let the girl get what she wanted. A while later, with the family decked out in their new outfits, Charlie led them to the photography studio. There, the family posed for a portrait. Standing was Arthur, age 16, Marie, age 17, Charlie, Fanny, holding three-month-old Mary Lou, and seated in front of them was four-year-old James, seven-year-old Maybelle, two-year-old Raymond, and 12-year-old Carrie. In the photo, all the family members, save Charlie, are looking straight into the camera. Charlie appears to be looking off to one side. The baby appears to be asleep, and the three youngest seem somewhat shyly glancing at the camera. Arthur and Carrie seem to have a slight smile, while Marie and Fanny sport a slightly dour expression. Marie in particular seems to be almost glaring at the camera, while tightly gripping the chair in front of her. I've included this picture in the show notes for you to examine for yourself. After taking the portrait, the family changed back into their everyday clothes for the return trip home. A few days later, a neighbor died unexpectedly, and the Lawsons attended the wake on December 19th. Some of the men stood outside around a fire to warm themselves. The night was bitterly cold, as the small house was filled to capacity. 
As often happens at funerals, they begin to speak about the untimely passing of the deceased and then began to speak about life and death in general. Those standing closest to him would later report that Charlie softly remarked, I wouldn't mind dying, but I would want to take my family with me. The next day, December 20th, over six inches of snow would fall in the foothills of North Carolina. The winter of 1929 would be known as one of the worst in many years. Record cold temperatures and heavy snowfall would be recorded across the United States. On December 23rd, Charlie Lawson hitched up one of his mules to ride into Walnut Cove to go to the bank. He would have fought large snowdrifts and braved the bitter cold. Charlie withdrew over $60, a large sum for 1929. Christmas Day fell on a Wednesday. The day started early for the family, with Fanny getting up to prepare a large breakfast for her family and their nephew, Sanders, who was staying with them for the holiday. That morning, Arthur and Sanders helped Charlie with the chores. Farm work never stops, even on the holidays. Then they all had breakfast together. After breakfast, Arthur and Sanders bundled up and headed outside. While it was still very cold out, the boys felt cramped in the small house and went outside to get some air. They decided to do some rabbit hunting. Telling Fanny they wouldn't be gone long, they left for about an hour and a half, heading back when they began to run low on ammunition. It was about 9 a.m. On the way back, they stopped at some other homes to say hello to friends and wish them a Merry Christmas. Arthur then returned home to get some more ammunition. While there, they decided to have a shooting contest in the yard and gathered up cans to see who could hit the most. Charlie joined them for a while and seemed to enjoy the fun and games with the boys. Inside the house, Marie was making a cake for the family to enjoy after their Christmas dinner. She had taken it out of the oven and was waiting for it to cool before she would ice it. While she waited, she began to roll her hair into curls. She wanted to look nice because later on a friend, Charlie Wade Hampton, was coming by to take him to the Christmas program at the church. Marie had a crush on Charlie Wade. She had just yesterday walked through the snow to leave a Christmas card for him in the mailbox. Meanwhile, her sisters Maybelle and Carrie prepared to go visit their uncle Elijah and Aunt Jenny's home. With the cake cooled enough now, Marie iced the white cake with sugar frosting, dotting the frosting all over with raisins. Marie loved to bake, and this raisin cake was one of the favorites she made for her family. She went back to rolling her hair as the younger children played in the front room. Fanny was at the stove preparing their Christmas dinner. Around noon, nine-year-old Hassel Miller came to play ball with James in the backyard. Raymond soon followed them out. It would soon be time for everyone to go home for their Christmas meals. Soon, only the Lawsons and Cousin Sanders remained. Arthur told his father that he and Sanders were out of ammunition, and they wanted to hunt some more that afternoon. He asked if he could borrow some from his father. No, answered Charlie. I don't have that much left, and I may want to go hunting myself a little later. Arthur said then he thought he and Sanders might walk into Germantown and get some more ammunition. Charlie said he thought that was a good idea. Charlie had gone inside and retrieved his rifle from the overhead beams of the front room. Saying that he had something to check on in the barn, he left by the front door. Charlie went behind the tobacco barn about 500 yards from the house. With him, he had his rifle he took from the house, as well as a double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun and a 12-gauge single-barreled shotgun. 
Carrie and Maybelle soon left the house to walk the short route to their Uncle Elijah's house. When the girls were only a few feet from the barn, Charlie stepped out from behind the building. He raised his rifle and pointed it at Carrie. She had time to see him pointed the gun at her as she raised her right hand to shield herself. The first shot went through her hand and into her head. Maybelle, witnessing her sister shot and lying on the ground, turned to run. Charlie aimed again, but the rifle, even with all the checking and preparation he'd done on his weapons, must have jammed. Charlie then switched weapons. He aimed and shot at Maybelle, hitting her in the back left side with a 12-gauge shotgun. The blast destroyed part of her lung. Several neighbors later reported hearing shots coming from the area of the Lawson home, but they would assume, as was common, that someone must be rabbit hunting that Christmas day. While mortally wounded, the girls were not dead. Charlie took aim again, but the gun would not fire. He picked up a two-by-four piece of wood from the side of the barn and used it to bludgeon the girls until they were dead. He was careful not to damage their faces. He then dragged the girls, one by one, into the barn. Inside, he carefully placed two flat stones, as if placing pillows below the girls' heads, and crossed their arms over their chests. He closed their eyes before leaving the barn, hooking the latch in place. He then walked towards the house. A young neighbor, Abe Heath, had just left the house after visiting with Fanny and Marie. He had come to see Carrie, who he had a crush on, but since she'd already left, he didn't stay, and had just left by the back door when Charlie was approaching the front of the house. Fanny had just stepped out on the porch to gather more firewood for the stove. She must have saw Charlie coming up the porch with his gun drawn. She turned to run, but the blast ripped a hole in her back, destroying half of her heart. Her body flew across the porch, scattering the wood that she was carrying in her arms. Charlie then dragged her body through the front door. The boys playing in the yard... Hassel, William, and Raymond heard the shots and the cries from the front of the house and entered the back door. Abe Heath, who was just beyond the yard, came back to see what the commotion was about. Hassel was the first in the door. He saw Marie screaming and crying over her dying mother. Abe behind him quickly ran back out of the door and to the safety of his home. Hassel saw Charlie lift the butt of the rifle to strike his wife, but she was dead now and he put it down. Charlie clicked the gun to load another shell, and Marie jumped to her feet. She moved towards the fireplace. Some believe she tried to get to the heavy poker to use to defend herself. When Marie was almost at the fireplace, Charlie aimed and fired at close range into Marie's back. The blast hit her with such force that it snapped her neck as her face hit the fireplace mantle. The blow broke several teeth and broke her wrist as well. Young Hassel, still standing in the doorway, said the hole in her body was so big that he could see all the way through it. Hassel then saw Charlie looking at him. While this was happening, four-year-old James and two-year-old Raymond, who had been behind him, ran and hid. James hid under the trundle bed while Raymond dove under the kitchen stove. Hassel ran out of the back door. He was so terrified he never told his parents what he had seen only relating the story to his home health care aide towards the end of his life. Marie was lying in a large pool of blood with a hole blown through her, but apparently Charlie wanted to make sure she was dead, so he hit her in the head with the butt of the rifle. Once again, the rifle jammed, and Charlie unsuccessfully tried to repair it. 
The two boys were crying, and Charlie moved towards Raymond first. He could not reach him to pull him out from under the stove. He tried to move the stone with the gun, but only managed to bend the barrel. He now had only one functioning weapon. He managed to pull Raymond out from the stove, and instead of shooting him, killed him by hitting him with the gun barrel. Again, he was careful not to damage his child's face. He ran next after a fleeing James, but he was able to catch him and bludgeon him as well. Poor baby Mary Lou cried in her crib. Without mercy, Charlie lifted the end of his shotgun once again, and soon she also was still. The downstairs where Charlie had killed five members of his family was a bloody mess. Charlie took the pillow off the bed that was his and Fanny's and placed it under his dead wife's head. He then went up the narrow stairs to the second floor where Marie and the girls slept. He retrieved Marie's pillow, walked back downstairs, and moved Marie's body by dragging it backwards towards the fireplace. There was so much blood that he slipped on it and fell backwards. The back of his coat was soaked in Marie's blood. Once he positioned her on her back, he placed the pillow underneath her head, crossed her arms, and closed her eyes. He then moved James's body near Marie's and did the same, placing his pillow under his head. He must have known time was running out and that people would be coming soon, so he left Raymond's body where it lay, halfway under the stove, and also placed his pillow under his head. He left the shotgun with the bent barrel in the house and took the single-barreled shotgun with him, as well as the rifle. He sat down once more briefly on the edge of the trundle bed, leaving a bloody impression from the back of his coat on it. He then got up and left the house. Meanwhile, Abe Heath had run home and burst in with the news of what he had seen at the Lawson house. The Heaths debated what to do. If Charlie was crazy enough to shoot his family, no one would be safe to try and go there to help. Unknown to them, Elijah Lawson, one of Charlie's brothers, and his two sons were out rabbit hunting that afternoon and decided to stop by Charlie's home to wish the family a Merry Christmas. When they got there, it was strangely quiet. They tried to look in one of the windows first, but saw nothing. Calling out, one of the boys pushed in the front door. It didn't open very far. Fanny's body was blocking it. Elijah looked through the front window and saw the blood and the bodies. He cried out in shock and then heard a noise from upstairs. It sounded like a scuffling or a dragging sound. Somebody's up there, his son cried. We have to get help. Whoever did this is still in the house. Although they had guns with them, they were out of ammunition and defenseless. They ran to the Heath, which was the closest home, and reached them at the same time they were trying to figure out what to do. Elijah reached the home and yelled out that the Lawson family had been killed and asked for help and to bring shells. The Hampton family was one of the only families close by with a telephone. They, therefore, were one of the first to receive word about someone being hurt at the Lawson home. Steve Hampton gathered some men, and they proceeded to the Lawson's property. On the way to the house, they passed the tobacco barn, and he saw two pools of blood in the snow, with a blood trail leading to the barn. Just then, a deputy arrived, and he alerted him to what he had found. When they unlatched the barn door and peered inside, they saw the body of the two girls. Elijah made his way to the Heath's home and learned that Arthur had gone into town with Sanders. Bob Heath's son went with Charlie Wade Hampton, his friend and the boy Marie liked. 
to find the two boys and bring them back. Arthur and Sanders had only arrived a few minutes earlier at the general store when they found them. Charlie Wade ran in and said that someone had killed the Lawson family. When Arthur heard that they were saying his family had been killed, he couldn't believe it. That can't be. I just left there, he cried. He ran all the way home, and his uncle Elijah and the other men had to hold him back. They did not want him to see the horrible scene in the home. The only thing he could see were his mother's feet sticking out from the front door. He threw himself on the porch in hysterics while touching his mother's feet through the small opening. When Charlie Lawson left his house, he ran to a pine thicket about 100 yards behind the tobacco barn. His two dogs had followed him into the woods. He left footprints everywhere he went in the fresh-fallen snow. He first stopped at the edge of the creek and washed the blood off of his hands and face, wiping his hands dry on his overcoat. He then went to a clearing in the pine thicket near a tree that stood by itself. He spent some time trying to unjam his rifle, lighting several matches, probably to warm his hands. He sliced a twig from the nearby tree and positioned it so that it could engage the trigger while he held the shotgun between his feet, pointed at his heart. But Charlie, it seemed, could not pull the trigger. He then found some receipts in his coat pocket and turned them over to the blank side. On one, he began to write, Troubles can cause, and then stopped. He began another note, writing, No one to blame but, and stopped once again. He did not finish either note. He put the gun down and began to circle the tree. His dogs waited close by in the snow. Charlie would continue circling the tree for some time while the men searched for him. Meanwhile, many people began to hear the rumors of the killings at the Lawson home. A crowd was forming near the house. No one had entered the house except the three Lawson brothers, Elijah, George, and Marion. Now they all waited on the porch for the sheriff and the coroner to arrive. While they waited, the curious continued to arrive. The brothers held them back. One man called out to them that he'd give them $500 if they let him inside to see the bodies. Once the sheriff arrived at the house, the investigation began. They found out that no one had yet found Charlie, and no one had gone up to the second floor. Was Charlie upstairs dead as well? Was he still in the house? With Abe Heath as an eyewitness, they knew that Charlie was the shooter. He could be lying in wait for anyone who would try to take him alive. The sheriff and two doctors who'd come when they'd initially heard there'd been an accident debated what to do. One of the onlookers called out, Hey, Sheriff, are you going to go up and look for Charlie? No, sir, he replied. He could blow a man's head off as quick as you went up there. Dr. Bynum, however, decided he would go up. He had been the doctor that attended young William when he'd fallen ill and died several years earlier. And he thought that Charles would remember that and would be less likely to harm him. As he started to go in, some people in the crowd called out, You'd better not go up there, old man. You'll get your head blown off. Well, the doctor replied, I've lived a long life. He then entered and started up the stairs with Deputy Sheriff Robert Walker behind him. They entered through the back door. On the way upstairs, they noticed the bloody handprints Charlie had left on the wall as he'd gone upstairs to retrieve the pillow. In fact, there was a whole accounting of Charlie's movements written in blood in the house. When Dr. Bynum reached the top of the stairs, it was just an open attic bedroom, 
there was no door to act as a barrier to whatever might be awaiting them. He took a deep breath and poked his head up into the room. He saw two small beds in the attic room, with one of the pillows missing. There was a few blood smears on the covers, but the room was empty. He called out an all-clear, and the hunt for Charlie continued. Armed men were stationed around the house and the property as a precaution. The crowd continued to grow, even as dusk began to fall, and the temperature dropped even further. A bonfire was lit, as much for light as for heat. The crowd didn't want to miss anything that might happen. The sheriff called his deputies to bring the bodies of Carrie and Maybell from the barn and place them in the home with the rest of the bodies. Before they could be seen by Arthur and the rest of the family, Marion made them all return back to his home. They were all numb with shock and cold, and he didn't see how them continuing to stay would be helpful. As the deputies began to carry the bodies out of the barn, from somewhere behind the house, they heard the sounds of dogs barking coming closer. Charlie's dogs, trained to guard the barn, were alerted by the sounds of the deputies and were running towards the building. Soon after, a gunshot was heard in the woods. Once the dog ran off, Charlie must have realized that the deputies would know wherever the dogs had come from, Charlie would be. Knowing they'd soon search for him in the woods, he realized that time was running out and finally pulled the trigger. The men soon discovered a single set of footprints in the deep snow and followed it. Raising their weapons, they descended into a thicket of small trees. A few feet in, they came upon Charlie Lawson's body on its back in the snow. There was a single gunshot wound to his chest. There was a circle stamped out in the snow where Charlie had paced for several hours before committing suicide. There was two melted spots in the snow as well, where his faithful dogs had lain, waiting and watching. Fortunately, they weren't there to see their master turn the gun on himself. The bodies were removed from the house for examination and preparation for the burial. Because of the thick snow and the steep descent to the house, it was hard for a wagon to get through. The bodies were wrapped and taken down by snow sled, where they could be transferred to the hearses that were waiting to make the trip to the funeral home. The bodies were first taken to the closest funeral home in Walnut Cove, but it was too small to deal with the number of bodies that needed to be handled. They were then transferred to a larger funeral home in Madison. Two doctors were given the task of examining the bodies and determining the cause of death. Dr. Spotswood Taylor had just completed a residency at Johns Hopkins University Hospital. He was in town to visit family over Christmas. As they worked, they began to speculate on what could have caused Charlie Lawson to do such a horrible thing. The other doctor had seen Charlie and heard his complaints of headaches and shared this with Dr. Taylor. Taylor thought it would be helpful to examine Charlie's brain. After a cursory examination where they didn't note anything unusual, Dr. Taylor preserved Charlie's brain in formaldehyde to take with him to Johns Hopkins for examination. The official conclusion of the coroner's jury was that the family members were victims of a murder-suicide. They also decided that there was enough evidence to conclude that Charles Davis Lawson was the murderer and had then died by his own hand. On the 26th of December, the Lawson family was displayed at the funeral home in Madison in open caskets. Many people came to view their bodies. The family was dressed in the new outfits Charlie had purchased for them for the family portrait taken just a few weeks earlier. Baby Mary Lou was cradled in her mother's arms. 
The very next day after the murders, people came in droves to view the crime scene. There was no ongoing investigations since the details of the crime were quickly agreed to by the sheriff. The sad case of the Lawson family murders was quickly closed. Amazingly, by the next day, people from near and far came to the property and began tramping through the house. There were still pools of blood and other more gory residue from the murders, and people continued to walk through it, upstairs and down and out in the barn. Some even took souvenirs. Marie's raisin cake still stood on the table, and some curiosity seekers even took a raisin off of the cake as a memento of the murder scene. Fortunately, only the early birds were able to run through freely. Soon that morning, some neighbors and family members arrived and shooed the looky-loos out of the house. They then began the grim task of cleaning up the house. The blood had pooled in several areas and coagulated, and some was semi-frozen from the cold. They had to use shovels to clean up the pools. A shallow grave was dug in the backyard, and the blood was deposited in it and buried. People continued to mill outside, some taking rocks from the property as souvenirs. One of the men who was doing the cleanup looked on in amazement as a sightseer pulled a canning jar out of their pocket and used it to scoop up some of Fanny's blood from the porch. They also traveled out to the barn, wanting to see where the two girls' bodies had lain, as well as to the pine thicket where Charlie had committed suicide. Charlie's blood was still visible in the snow. No one stepped on it. The sightseers and souvenir hunters continued to arrive. Sometimes dozens of cars lined the steep road up to the house. Marion sat one day with some friends lamenting this strange set of circumstances. I don't know what to do about it. I'm afraid they're going to tear the place to pieces and carry everything off that ain't nailed down. I'll tell you what you can do, his friend Jim Hill advised. If they're going to keep coming anyway, you should just fence the place off, set up, and charge them to get in to see it. Wouldn't nobody blame you. Do you really think that would be a good idea, Marion asked? Why not? How are you going to pay off that farm for the boy if you don't find some way to make money from it? Marion needed to see to Arthur's future, now an orphan with his whole family gone. It was a real concern. The next $500 payment would be coming due soon. He spoke with his family that night, and the next day, they placed a fence around the property. Within three weeks after the murders, the Lawson family home was well established as a tourist attraction. For a 25-cent admission fee, the curious could enter the house and view the murder scene, complete with bloodstains still visible, including the bed where Charlie had sat and left a bloodstained impression. Just inside the door, the murder weapons were mounted and on display. They could also travel upstairs and view the bloody handprints in the stairwell. Marie's cake still sat on the kitchen table. Marion had placed a glass dome over it so that no more raisins could be picked off of it. All the furnishings were still in the house, including the bloody crib. Okay, I know what you're thinking right now. Sick. And yes, you would be correct. Pretty morbid and gross, right? I felt the same way when I started researching this story. But then I got to thinking... This was 1929's version of true crime, was it not? I mean, people like us who consume true crime content can hardly judge. But we can read books on almost every true crime case, watch documentaries, and even whole television channels dedicated to true crime. And of course, 
listen to podcasts devoted to true crime cases. But these folks in 1929 were just as curious, and this was their chance to get up close and maybe a little too personal to true crime. At least, that's how I came to see it. But yeah, it's still pretty gross. As the crowds began to decrease, Marion began opening the Lawson home to tourists only on Sundays. He continued this practice for several years, until he finally decided to close the house for good. At that time, he and his daughter Stella took all the bloody furnishings out of the house and the drawers full of clothes and other items that were still in the house and burned them. Marion took the cake and buried it. Arthur went to live with his mother's sister, his Aunt Ida. He had been dating a girl named Irene, and they planned to marry. But her father was concerned about his daughter marrying into a family predisposed to murder and would not allow it. Arthur acquired the nickname Buck and was called by that name the rest of his life. He stayed close to his uncle Marion and worked for him for a time. He was also close, like brothers, to his cousin Sanders, who he'd been with the day he merrily missed being killed. People, of course, speculated why Charlie let Arthur escape that day. He could have sent Sanders home, or to get more ammunition, leaving Arthur behind to suffer the same fate as the rest of the family. Some believe that Charlie was afraid Arthur was strong enough to fight his father, thus preventing him from his goal of murder-suicide. This is very possible, and probably the most logical explanation. Charlie surely knew that the remaining members of the family could not fight him off. Arthur, or Buck, rarely mentioned the murders or his family after the funerals. He couldn't bring himself to do so, and he began drinking heavily as a young man, and often behaved recklessly. This is certainly understandable. The pain of losing your entire family, the confusion of knowing your father had taken them away and left you an orphan, and the survivor's guilt he must have felt for being the only one left alive. Buck grew into a big, strong young man, standing six foot four inches tall. He even took a job as a bouncer for a time at a local dance hall. In his early 20s, he met and married a young woman named Nina. They had four children together, and Buck was ecstatic at being a father and having a family of his own once again. Unfortunately, his relationship with Nina wasn't as blissful. Buck was jealous and afraid Nina would leave him. She was a beautiful woman, and he often still drank too much, which led to frequent arguments. He eventually did lose the Lawson farm and began working for his Uncle Marion in a construction business. In 1945, Buck was out with some friends, and while driving back on the highway, he went through a barrier that was placed to warn drivers of some road work. Crashing through the barrier, the truck went off the road and landed on Arthur's chest, crushing the breath out of him. James Arthur Buck Lawson was dead at the age of 31. His wife Nina decided to leave the area after her husband's death. She and her children moved to California and away from the place where so much tragedy had occurred in the Lawson family. But the question remains, why did Charlie Lawson kill his family and then take his own life on that long-ago Christmas day? People have speculated about this for decades. Some thought it might be for financial reasons, and the Lawsons certainly had some struggles, but no more so than any other family in the area. He finally had his farm, and while that might have added some stress, 
By most accounts, it was profitable and could provide his family what they needed. Some thought the blow to his head might have caused him to become more angry and then act upon it in such a violent way. He was known to have a bad temper. Maybe there was something wrong with his brain. But when the doctor performed the autopsy, they didn't see anything obviously wrong with his brain. No damage that would cause such a thing. While Dr. Taylor did take the brain to be examined at Johns Hopkins, no records have been found as to what might have been discovered, which leads most to believe that nothing could be found to explain Charlie's actions. What about the late night crying and praying? Was he losing his mind? At first, I considered clinical depression as a cause for these behaviors. He did seem to be losing control and becoming increasingly despondent. But what came out much, much later after the murders made the pieces fall into place. In 1987, authors Trudy Smith and M. Bruce Jones wrote the book White Christmas, Bloody Christmas about the Lawson family murders. In the original ending, they wrote that no one would probably ever know the real reason behind the murders. Stella Lawson Bowles, the daughter of Marion Lawson, had been interviewed for the book several times by the authors. Once she read this, she felt she needed to come forward and tell the whole truth. Stella told the authors that on December 27th, two days after the murders, the family had gathered to console one another. Several of the women huddled together and began to talk about the family secret. Stella overheard this conversation, but didn't question anyone about it at the time. Later, as an adult, she asked her Aunt Nina about what she had heard, and her aunt proceeded to tell her the entire story. She then asked her not to repeat the information. The women had discussed the fact that Marie Lawson had been pregnant at the time of her murder. Her mother, Fanny, had become aware of the pregnancy not long before Christmas. Fanny had confided this to her sisters-in-law and also to Ida, her own sister. Stella honored her promise to her Aunt Nina for many years. The fact that Marie was pregnant was scandalous in of itself, but when pressed by her mother, Marie had confided that the father of the baby was none other than her own father, Charlie. Trudy Smith didn't want to take this information at face value. After all, it could be mere family gossip and speculation, no matter what was said in those early days. But in 1993, Stella accompanied a friend to visit her mother in a nursing home in North Carolina. The friend's mother was named Ella May, and she had been a close friend of Marie Lawson's. Two weeks before the murder, Ella told her Marie had spent the night at her house. As they talked late into the night, Ella could tell that something was bothering her friend. When pressed, Marie finally blurted out that she was pregnant. Ella then asked whose baby she was carrying. Oh, Ella May, she said, Marie cried. It's my papa's baby. Ella May was heartbroken for her friend, but she didn't judge her, and Marie, she thought, would know that. The previous year, Ella May had been raped by her own father, and she had confided this to Marie previously. Ella May asked if Marie's mother knew. Marie admitted that she had finally told her mother when she had become suspicious that Marie might be pregnant and kept pressing her to tell her who the father was. She then asked Marie if her father knew. Yes, he knows, Marie said. And he said if I told anyone, especially Mama, there would be some killing done. 
Ella May might have been the only person outside of the Lawson family who knew about the family scandal, and most likely the reason for the murders. The authors interviewed Ella May directly and were convinced that these events actually took place. Now with two sources, Fanny's conversation with her sister and sisters-in-law, and Marie's admission to Ella May, they were sure of the truth. With Stella Lawson Bull's permission, this information was included in Trudy Smith's 2006 updated book about the Lawson family murders, titled The Meaning of Our Tears. The Lawson family was buried at Browder Cemetery on December 27, 1929, in one massive grave. It took several men to dig a grave six foot deep, nine foot wide, and 20 feet in length in the frozen earth. Young William, who died in 1920, had his marker removed, and his plot was included in the family grave. Charlie was buried along with his wife and children. A giant headstone marks all of their names and dates. December 25th, written several times on the stone. An inscription is included on the headstone, which reads, Not now, but in the coming years, it will be a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then some time we'll understand. The ceremony was to start at noon, and was planned to be simple and brief. By one o'clock, several hundred people converged in and around the cemetery. By the early afternoon, there were over 1,000 in attendance. Crowds waited in front of the funeral home to watch the caskets be loaded into the five hearses to be taken to the cemetery for burial. By late Friday night, after all the people had finally left, the family was laid to rest. The next morning, Charlie Wade Hampton, Marie's intended boyfriend, went to his mailbox and found a red postcard depicting a green Christmas wreath addressed to him. It was signed by Marie Lawson. Years later, one of Charlie Wade's daughters would find that card in her father's personal possessions. He never spoke of Marie or the Lawson family that she knew of, but she knew he had known her, and he was fond of her. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I wish you a happy and peaceful Christmas, and remember, if the holidays stress you out, there's always wine and podcasts. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Special thanks to our marketing assistant, Nancy Chen, and our research assistants, Sabrina Atkinson and Sarah Villarreal. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Upon a Crime, and on Facebook and Instagram, at Once Upon a Crime Pod. And we have a new fan page on Facebook. Check it out. Until next time, be good to one another. On one Christmas evening, the snow lay on the ground near his home in North Carolina. In this murder, he was found. His name was Charlie Lawson, and he had a loving wife. So we'll never know. At first, and the little ones did cry. Please, Papa, won't you spare?
just kept on firing fatal shots until he killed them all. And when Sad, sad news was heard It was an awful surprise He had killed six children and his wife And then he closed their eyes And now farewell, kind friends and home I'll see you all no more Into my breast I'll fire Then my troubles will be old. They did not carry him to jail. No lawyers did he pay. But they'll have his trial in another world on the final judgment day. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.